as we come to this uh, new section. I must say that in the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, we're still very much in the introduction as sermons go. Our Lord Jesus was the greatest of preachers and his sermons uh, were brilliant, perfect, and he does have an introduction. And the introduction to his sermon is the Beatitudes. And this section that we are now considering is still a part or very much connected to the Beatitudes. I'll point this out as we start so we know, uh, or so this provides for us a context to look at this section. If you notice in the Beatitudes, most of them were addressed in the third person. Blessed are the, for theirs is the, that was the, the norm. But as we get to the last, uh, to the last Beatitude, the one that we considered last week, we see that the, the, the person shifts from the third person the, uh, to the second person. He no longer is blessed are those, or he goes from blessed are those who are persecuted, but in verse 11, our Lord changes from the third person to the second person, and he says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And this language, this second person, uh, plural by the way, uh, this language carries on to, the, to, the, to this discourse, this section that we are considering. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus is addressing in verse 11 and 12 the persecuted directly. Blessed are you. And then he tells them, you are the salt of the earth. So it is connected to what just went before. And we are meant to see it. And we are meant to look at these verses, 13, 14, 15, and 16, in light of what preceded it. It's not an entirely new section, but it's an out flow, or it's a, a logical conclusion of those things that were just said, both in the Beatitudes in general, and in the persecuted, in the Beatitude, or the blessedness of persecution in particular. And I said that uh, we should mark that these promises are in the second person plural, and here some, some of you who use the AV are probably saying, see, that's why we use the the AV, because it's blessed are ye, not blessed are thou. Um, but that's why we have pastors and preachers to explain these things when, when sometimes the translation is not as uh, clear. But it's the second person. It is addressing the whole community of, of people, the persecuted community that is the church. The church is the salt of the earth, uh, the, the light of the world. Not individuals, although individuals can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, but they only salt and light in as much as they belong to a church community. There is no such thing as an individual grain of salt, salt in the earth, or a, a, a little photon of light lighting the world. There is no such thing as a, a sheep that outside of the fold. Why? Because it gets eaten by the wolf. And the idea is here present. The covenant community, the kingdom community, the citizens of the kingdom, they act as a body, as a nation. They live together. And this is clear here. And I say this because nowadays it's so often the case. People will, will have this ultra-individualistic view of Scripture and they'll pick up and apply everything to them individually. That although applies to them individually, it applies individually in the context of a church community, of a body of believers. 
And it just grinds my gears. I, I was reading a comment somewhere in the internet. Someone posted something, and, uh, and, uh, and the comment went something like this. Uh, As a Christian, although I don't go to church, can you really call yourself a Christian? There is no such thing as an unchurched Christian in the New Testament. But unfortunately, that's what we deal with. But just so we're clear, as we consider this, our Lord didn't believe in individual uh, rogue Christians that don't belong to a church community. We belong. We are, uh, and, and this is the theme of this, of this gospel, of the gospel of Matthew, and it's the theme of this sermon that Jesus is preaching. It's all about kingdom life. Life of, in, for the citizens of this kingdom. So, with that said, Jesus now stops pronouncing blessings and he starts communicating responsibilities. The privileges or the blessings are done for a moment, at least, and now it's the responsibilities. Jesus transitions from what we are to what we do, in a certain way at least. And as I said last week, and as I alluded to last week, the church, the kingdom of God, the citizens of the kingdom, the church, uh, they are essentially, in essence, at its core, different from the world. That's why we, uh, we have persecution. That's why we have opposition. Because that's why it is inevitable for these things to happen. Because the church, the kingdom of God, is opposite to what the world is. Although the church is taken from the world, it, it is transformed by the grace of God and put back into the world. And by the grace of God, it retains its makeup and its, its uh, differentness in the world. We're called out of the world, but we are back in the world, but we are not of the world, but we are sent back to the world to witness to the world. And the reality is, this is important, before we come to consider the, the, the salt and the, and the light aspect, this is important because the church is only relevant, the church is only relevant in as much as it is totally different from the world. The world cannot dictate our beliefs. The world cannot dictate our practices, our, our in the past, when things were written in Latin, the, the scholars used to call it credenda and agenda. We know these two words. Credenda comes from belief, credo, creed, uh, credo, uh, credenda, and agenda. Agenda is a word that we use so often nowadays. Well, the agenda of this person is such and such, or the agenda of that politician is, is this or that. Agenda is the actions. And what we believe, our credenda, impacts our what we do, our agenda. And the world cannot dictate neither how, what we believe or how we act. Because we are not to be like this world. The, whenever the church, whenever the people of God start being too uh, friendly, I think the, the word there is really good. Whenever the church has uh, a friendship with the world, that spells out disaster. James the Apostle uh, says this, not the Apostle, but James, the, 
the brother of Jesus, the, the author of the book of James, says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But it's not just James, is it? John, we, we read this passage last week, but it bears with reminding day after day, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the, uh, for, of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The Apostle Paul, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, that, but that's, unfortunately, that's the issue, the tendency and the temptation, not just in, in those churches out there, but in our churches as well, is to conform just a little bit to the world so that we can attract just, uh, attract some more people to come in. And the tendency and the temptation is not just in slightly more modern, slightly more liberal churches, it happens in our circle. We might not do it with, with the, the style of worship, or it might be very far away from, but we do it with our language. We do it with the things that we embrace. Uh, when we start speaking like the world, embracing the ideas and the, and the, and the, 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 the fights and, the, and the, the things that this world embraces, and then we start allowing that language to sip into our, to our, cult, to our church, we do it. We allow ourselves to be transformed by the world, and then we wonder why the, the, the church has lost its saltiness. Because when the church tries to imitate the world in order to attract it, we actually lose the power of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel. And it is wonderful, before we come to consider the salt and the light aspect, uh, it is wonderful to see this as well. It is uh, interesting, at least, to see this. Even though the church is persecuted, that's what we considered last week, even though the, the citizens of the kingdom will face opposition, in whatever form it might take in a, in a particular day and age. In our day, it's not so much that we're being driven into coliseums in the, in the West, in the UK, at least at the moment. But we, are, we, need, we face opposition, growingly so. And even though the church is persecuted and opposed to, what our Lord says here in verse 13 to verse 16 is that we are called to serve this world. We are called to be uh, servants of this world that persecutes us. The, 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 the answer to the hatred and the, the lies that the world prefer, uh, tells about Christians, about us, the answer to it that our Lord Jesus says to us is to serve them as the salt and the light of this world is to love them and to speak truth. So the question is, what do these images mean? I think there is a lot to unpack here, and we certainly will not have time to unpack it all. I think there is a lot of wisdom in some pastors that preached a series through the, the Sermon on the Mount. Lloyd-Jones took three sermons to get through this section, some others have taken four or five, and I'm sure if you look at some of the Puritans, they probably took 50 sermons to, to unpack three verses. We'll do it in just one sermon. But we'll look, we'll look at it first, consider each element individually, salt and light, and we'll end up by considering how these two symbols fit together. Because 
in the brilliance and the genius, the homiletical genius, the best preacher that ever lived was Jesus. In the homiletical brilliance of our Lord, there is so much to, to consider, both in those two elements separate, but even as you bring them together, there is uh, a lot of richness to unpack there. But let's consider them separate first. So we are being told that the church, the kingdom of God, the citizens of the kingdom, as they are in the world, they are to be the salt of the earth. And here first, before we unpack this uh, in its this metaphor uh, fully, let me just bring some, uh, some Old Testament uh, understanding to this, because this is not speaking in a vacuum. I hope you remember, as we've been going through the book of Matthew, there was a lot of references to the Old Testament, from the, the birth narratives and, the, and the, the allusions to Moses, to Abraham, John the Baptist as Elijah, and, and all of those allusions from the Old Testament, we were meant to see it. It didn't stop as we got to the Sermon on the Mount. It is still here, and it is here in the, in the, in the salt and the light section. What is salt in the Old Testament? Salt was brought with every sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 2 speaks, With all your offerings, God said, you are to offer salt. It was not just the grain offerings, it was the flesh offerings. It was, all of it should include salt. In various places in Leviticus, the sacrifices are described as bread and food for, for God, for the Lord. It's the food of God, the sacrifices that are offered. When Israel offered the sacrifice, they were, they were basically offering food up to God. Not that God needs to eat, not that God needs the sustenance, but it's called the food of God. And salt, in this context, seasons the, the food of God so that it becomes pleasing. If you ever tried to eat something that was planned and, and unsalted, you know how difficult it is to eat, especially if you have Southern European blood. All food seems unsalted to me uh, when I eat here, <laughs> here in the UK. I just need to put more, but it becomes bland and you just, you just cannot eat it. And the point being, in the, in the offering of salt, uh, uh, with the sacrifices, is that you're temp uh, putting some uh, condiments, you're, you're seasoning the food of God, you're making it savory, you're making it tasty to Him, even though He does not eat it. It's all about imagery. Salt was called, in uh, Leviticus 2.13, the salt of the covenant. It is a mark between the, the of the covenant between God and, and uh, Israel. So this, this is just a little bit of context to understand that it is related to temple worship. Salt was very much a part of the, of the center of the worship of the people of God. It is there in the temple, in every sacrifice of grain and meat, everything was salted. Salt was present. The most obvious characteristic, and I think the, 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 the one that we are meant to see, the one that we are meant to consider, the one that is relevant uh, to us in application, is that salt is essentially different from the, the thing that is salted. You, salt is different from the thing that it salts. And its power, its influence, its impact, it lies precisely in the fact that salt is different from whatever it's seasoning. 
is being used on it. One of the ways that salt was used in the, in the ancient times was as an antiseptic, as a preservative. When Jesus gave this discourse, there were no refrigerators. There were no uh, other ways of, of preserving meat and other rotting foods, other foods that waste uh, with the passing of time. The only way to preserve food from decomposition was to add salt, to salt it, to keep it from becoming putrefied. Even today, as uh, some of you know, in many uh, countries, uh, salted food is a, a staple. In my country, we love our salted cod. I know there's some Jamaican descendants here, and they, you also have your salted fish, which I'm sure is tasty. I never tried it. People use uh, all kinds of food, uh, uh, salts, or they use salt to preserve all kinds of foods nowadays, even today. Not so much used today is the antiseptic anti uh, uh, route. For thousands of years, up until very recently with the advent of modern medicine, if you had a wound, an open wound, one of the best things you could do, one of the the, the safest, the surest ways that, that you could keep that wound from infecting and killing you before the advent of antibiotics and uh, anti, uh, impotent antiseptics was to get some salt. If you're near uh, the, the beach, if you're near the seaside, you would get some salty water from the sea directly, or you would get just some water, get some salt, and, and rub salty water, salt water, in that wound. It will hurt as you rub it, it will burn, it will actually will make that, that wound won't close, uh, won't heal uh, in, in the longer run, but at, at that moment, at least you know it's not going to infect. So what does this mean when Jesus uses it in this way, to relate something about the church? That's our role in this world. There is a certain sense that the Christian in the world acts as an antiseptic, as a preservative uh, of, in the world. The, the influence of Christianity in a, in, a, in a society acts in such a way that it prevents a society from becoming completely rancid. And if you show me a society where the influence of, of a, the Christian church has diminished or disappeared, I'm sure uh, I can show you in that society that that's a society that you don't want to live in because it has devolved into violence and all kinds of matters of, uh, of evil are happening there. The right conduct of Christians, of believers, of the church in a society keeps the society in check. Show me a society that the Lord is judging. And you know how the Lord judges that society, that culture, that nation, that, that region? You know how he judges it? By removing the church. Giving them up to their own wickedness. And then you look at the UK, you look at the West in general, you look at the UK, and you start wondering, where are all the Christians gone? Where are all the, the many ministers that used to be around? Where have all they, are all they gone? If they are uh, dropped out of ministry, they've retired, where 
hire the younger ones to replace the older ones. What is happening? I'll tell you what is happening. The Lord is digging up this nation for their own wickedness. You see, one of the tasks of the church as being the salt is to prevent the world from self-destroying itself, uh, or self-destroying itself. It's to prevent the world from destroying itself. It's as if the church is a moral purifier in a sense where the, the church is acting uh, in a very unstable uh, society as, a, as a, a preservative. But mind you, the church is not called to be the honey. The, the church is not called to be something pleasing. It's called the salt of the earth. It hurts, it stings, it bites. But its result is good. Someone said, and this is important, it has applications for us. Someone said that, um, I believe it was John Stott, uh, that the church is not salt in the salt shaker. What we've been told when the church is called the salt of the earth is that the church is inserted in the world, is interacting with the world, is, is, is pushing back against the world. It's this idea of, uh, of becoming a Christian and isolating yourself in, in, a, in a church building, in a church community, and not interacting with the world, and, and enclosing off yourself in a monastery kind of environment, in a, in a glass dome, in a, in, a, in a protected environment. This is completely unchristian. This is not what the Lord has called us to do. We're not, we're in the world. We are to be in the world, engaging with the world, but not loving the world, and not be, befriending the world. We are to insert ourselves. We are to influence, not to be salt in a salt shaker, because that's basically being tasteless. No one can taste you. No one can interact with you. But we're being, we're being salt in the world, not in some in the pantry hidden away, but being rubbing against the secular community. Because as we do so. In the Lord's goodness, this message that so often jars them and causes them to oppose us and to persecute us is the message that actually keeps them from going as far as they would go had they not have had they not have had the influence of the Christian church in the society. How Christianity is a blessing, and look, and look brother, I've said this before. The world will want us to think ourselves to be the bad guys. They will want us to think ourselves to be the, the awkward, the, the evil-spirited, or Christianity, to be apologetic in the, in the sense of being uh, almost uh, guilty for the message that we carry. Brethren, our message is the best message that the world can hear. We're not the bad guys in this. And so often it seems like the way that the world uh, uh, speaks of us, or not so often, the, word, the way that the world speaks of us is as if we are the bad guys. And so often it seems like it impacts the way that we see ourselves in the mirror. Brothers, we're, we're, the, we're the good guys. We're, we're the, the ones that are actually have a message that is worth hearing. And whenever Christianity has influenced the nation, that nation has thrived. Look at church history. It was Christianity that invented the universities. It was because of Christianity when the Roman Empire fell 
and barbarians were at the doors of Rome. It was because of the Christian influence that actually the society didn't devolve into barbarism. It was the Christian church that introduced arts and, and music and painting, science. Well, uh, we'll tell you now that science is opposed to religion, and it, 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 it lies to you, and it, it doesn't tell you that the greatest scientists were Christians. Galileo, Newton, the greatest artists, Bach, Mendelssohn, Handel, Vivaldi, the charitable movement in the West was started by how many charities in this in this city were started by Christians? How many trusts and how many uh, institutions that nowadays have nothing of Christianity in them were actually started by Christians back in the in the eighteen hundreds? Orphanages. The seeds of, of the abolition of slavery were, were written in the New Testament, and it was Christians that championed it. William Wilberforce. After slavery ended in America, there were still the civil rights movement, the, the, the civil rights issues there. There was still segregation between, uh, between the blacks and whites. Who was it that championed the, the, the tearing down of those walls? The Christian pastor. And however we don't agree with, however much we don't agree with most of his theology, he was a, a Christian pastor applying the Bible message to his situation. We all know that 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 great discourse, that great speech. I have a dream, but we tend to stop there. I have a dream, Martin Luther King said, and he quoted from Scripture. I have a dream. Then one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And he might disagree with his exegesis, but he's picking up on the words of the prophet Micah, the prophet that was uh, very concerned about social justice. And I know this word is kind of a... Uh, uh, a negative word in some circles nowadays. I'm not advocating for social justice, I, but Michael was one that was concerned about those who were in power to do what was right, to defend the, the, the defenseless, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. That's the message that Martin Luther King was preaching, and, and that's, that's the message that was the, the catalyst for the civil rights movement in America, to put down all those Jim Crow laws. You know why? Because, because he was a Christian, because he believed in the Christian message, because he believed in the Word of God. However much we disagree with the rest of this theology, I'm not going to go in, into that rabbit hole now. But it was because he believed that all men are created equal. It was because he believed that there is only one race in the Bible, the human race, that he preached what he preached. Because he believed that there was that there was that the Bible promises peace on earth and goodwill to men that he did and said what he said. You see, Christians are the salt of the earth. And whenever Christianity has tried, the culture has tried, and, the, and society has, by and large, although still opposed to God, been bettered by it. We are called to be the salt of the earth. And I'm, I'm already um, 
a little bit behind, but we're called to be this salt, not to lose our saltiness, because otherwise we lose our usefulness. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Our Lord asks. We must retain our saltiness, brethren. A lot of discussion has been had in commentaries and in, in, in uh, seminary classes about what Jesus meant about the salt losing its saltiness. This technically, chemically, and I'm not a chemist, but sodium chloride doesn't lose its saltiness. But the point is that Jesus was not giving us a, uh, teaching us a lesson in chemistry. He was teaching us a lesson on how we are to be the salt of the earth. We are not to lose our saltiness. How does salt lose its saltiness? Well, if they get mixed up, if they get contaminated by other uh, uh, things. And I think that's the point. Not so much to give us a lesson in, 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 chemis, in, in chemistry, but to tell us that if we become contaminated by the world, we are losing our, our saltiness. Because in reality, and ask any chemist this, True salt never loses its saltiness. And you could actually apply this to the, to, the, to the ones that God has called. Those that have true faith will never lose their faith. Because God keeps them. Because God perseveres with them. Brother Nam, I said that I was going to look at 14 and 16. And I'm going to spare you going through two verses and running the risk of, of not doing uh, of not being uh, thorough enough by looking at it and we'll look at the, the light of the world next next week but as we consider the saltiness let me say this it is the saltiness of the church that keeps and transforms a society. And it is obvious as we are salty, not salty as the world says, Michael will sometimes say, Oh, you're being very salty. So you're being very uh, grumpy. I think that's how, they, how, they, how the, the, the new generation uses it. But it's as we are salty in this world, as we are salty in this world, there will be two reactions of this world. The world will either hate you. And they will oppose you, persecute you, verse 10, 11, and 12. And there we are called to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Or they will com be completely attracted by it. Almost counterintuitively attracted by the message that is rubbing them the wrong way. That is biting them and, and, and stinging them. The glory of the gospel is that a church that is completely and absolutely different from the world, it attracts the world. Not because we are attractive, but because the message attracts a world that it, and inclines it to, to be transformed. The message of being salty is a, a, a perhaps ironic. Or the, the message of being persecuted because of our message uh, uh, it's perhaps slightly ironic. 
The Lord says that those who are humble, poor in spirit, and those who are meek, and those who mourn are persecuted. And it doesn't really seem to be uh, a natural thing to happen. Why, why would the world approach people who are meek, keep to themselves, peacemakers? But the reality is that it does. The merciful, the peacemakers, the humble, the meek, they are persecuted. And it's slightly ironic, but it's realistic. Look at the history of the church. You don't need to look far. You go to the, the ending of the book of Matthew, and they are persecuting the Christ. You don't need, you get, you get into the book of Acts, and they're persecuting the meek, the lowly, the humble, the merciful, and the, and the peacemakers. Look at the book of Revelation, and that's happening. Look throughout church history, and that has happened. This idea that we as Christians, uh, uh, we, uh, it's often passed on, it was passed on perhaps in a generation or two ago, the idea of a Christian being the, in the Simpsons. You know the Simpsons, the Christian in the Simpsons, uh, uh, Flanders, Ned Flanders. It's that kind of gullible, nice guy that uh, can do no harm, that, that really doesn't uh, get anyone uh, offended. He's just an all-in-all, uh, out-and-out good guy. Perhaps a little bit too naive, a little bit. That's, that was the idea. And it's still a, the idea at times. Uh, and perhaps it's the idea in our heads. But that's not the idea that Jesus speaks of. It's not the idea of the New Testament of the Christian, is it? Woe to you, the Lord said, when they speak well of you. Woe to you when they speak well of you. If everybody likes you, if everybody loves you, if everybody loves to be around you, I would say perhaps you should consider if you're really being salty enough. Because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It wasn't me that asked this question, but there was a, a pastor that once asked this question, that a man's Christianity is perfectly visible to all men. And he asks, asked him, are you invisible? A man's Christianity is perfectly visible, or should be, if he's a, truly, a true Christian, should be visible to all men. Or are you a closet Christian? Uh, a former pastor of mine, my, my first pastor, I could say, he, he had this uh, he used to call it, are you a 007 Christian? One that no one really knows that you are one. Are you a secret servant agent kind of Christian? The question is, if, if Christianity was outlawed tomorrow, we won't. At least not in the way that, that I'm describing. But if Christianity was outlawed tomorrow, is there enough? In the way you act, in the way you speak, in the way you are as a Christian, for the police to come and arrest you? Is there enough of that salt in your life? And if you were arrested and brought to court, would, would, would there be uh, an abundance of evidence that, you're, that the accusation lawyer 
would be able to stand there and say, this is a slam dunk case. Look at all of this. This man is a Christian. There is no denying it. He not only went to church, but he acted like a Christian. He behaved like a Christian. Every one of his friends and every one of his family, they can come here and testify and witness that he was a Christian. Not only what he said, but what he did. Would that be enough? In your works, in the way that you behave, to get you arrested, to get you condemned in the trial? That is the question for us consider are we being salty enough because we, brother we win the world not by being like the world but by being different from the world by truly flavoring this tasteless world the tasteless philosophies and ideas of this world and bringing them the light of Christ the salt of the earth We win the world not by being worldly, but by being otherworldly, by being unworldly. May the Lord help us to be so and to do so.